One of the most clear insights from our recent consensus in the marketing and advertising space of AI, where we interviewed over 50 executives in AI and marketing and advertising, people running companies at the crossroads of kind of machine learning and marketing, was that companies that have more digital touch points along the path to conversion and more conversions in general do have a bit of an unfair advantage in terms of applying machine learning to their marketing processes. Not surprising, and there are ways that sort of stodgy companies can be saved. I definitely advise you to click on research when you're on the homepage of our website and check out the recent marketing and advertising consensus. But this interview really shines a lot of light on that dynamic and maybe why that is the case and how certain companies are taking advantage of it. It's also a little bit off the beaten path. We don't cover gaming very much here. And I'll tell you why. I'm very well aware from emailing back and forth with and reading comments from the people who dig into our content, who reply to our newsletters, I'm very well aware that people are digesting our material in order to make smarter business decisions. Generally speaking, we like to focus on B2B companies, companies that are providing AI services or products to other businesses. You know, this, the gaming company that we have on today, Scopely, is not going to be a company that services your business, but it is going to be a company that's leveraging data science in a way that will be inspirational, useful, and a potential analogy for processes you could implement in your own business, which is why I decided to take the call. Anker is one of the co-founders of Scopely. Scopely is a very fast-growing mobile gaming company based in Los Angeles. They've raised a huge amount of funds. They've had a lot of very big hits. And Anker speaks with us in this interview about how very well dialed in and instrumented the mobile gaming environment is and how data is used and leveraged in order to coax out and yield higher conversions over time and how systems are set in place in order to ensure that, to ensure the success of the business model itself. Gaming is a pretty wild world. I mean, you, you gotta, it's kind of a hits-based business, a little bit like venture investing in some way, shape, or form. The leveraging of data is so tremendously important, but also so tremendously accessible. I think those of you who are leveraging digital marketing in a powerful way, or who have a lot of digital touch points through web apps or through your engagements with your customers, will probably garner some new ideas about ways that you could leverage that to make your own business a little bit sharper. For those of you who want to hear more interviews along these lines as well, um, if you go to the Insights tab on our menu uh, at the homepage, techemergence.com, you go to the Insights tab there, you can see all of our interviews with investors. Uh, insights is where we keep all of our one-to-one uh, -one interviews, by the way. You can see insights from investors, insights from researchers, and insights from executives and founders. This is an executive and founder interview, so you'll see it in that category, but you can explore the rest of the stuff as well. I think in terms of digital marketing, this is quite an interesting sort of highlighted use case of industries that are on the cutting edge, and I hope it will be useful for everybody tuned in. So without further ado, this is Ankur with Scopely. So Ankur, before I get into sort of the artificial intelligence applications in the mobile gaming space, as you know, before we actually got on the microphone, you had talked about just how business intelligence heavy that world is, just how instrumented the nuances of the mobile gaming environment are. Why is that? And, and what did you mean by that? I think that'll set the tone for a lot of the rest of the interview. Yeah. So I think the, the first place to start is realizing how big the mobile gaming marketplace is. So I encourage 
all the listeners to go to the apps, the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and click on the top grossing. And you'll see that maybe 90 to 95 out of 100 apps or maybe 90 percent of the apps in there are all games. And what does this tell us is that most of the things that make money on the mobile smartphone platforms are games. And you pair that with a low conversion rate of payers in the free-to-play gaming market, and it becomes critical to optimize the 2-3%. And so this is where you really need deep understanding of your users and analytics to be able to hone in on that 2% that will actually pay in the game and then convert some of that 2% and even smaller percentage into, into your whales. So we're looking for, you know, we may have, let's say, uh, a game may have a million DAU, and then we're looking for, you know, something in a very low order of magnitude number of the most extreme payers. So you really need analytics to hone in here. Wow. Interesting. So on the average, and now you're, you're kind of just whipping numbers around, but you had mentioned two or 3%. I mean, is this what a well-instrumented, well-orchestrated free-to-play mobile game might expect? Hey, you, you get you get 100 folks to step into this thing and start fiddling around. If you're doing really well, you'll get two or three of those folks to kind of, you know, crack the credit card open, um, you know, at least initially. Is this sort of like baseline metrics for your company, for the industry at large, where did you pull this those out? This is pretty industry standard that you're going to get about, you know, roughly 2 to 3% payer base. I think it was in a, a South Park episode complaining about, you know, free-to-play games and kind of uh, <laughs> lamenting the fact that it's kind of encouraging you to, to pay. The thing to realize about these games is that, you know, 98% are playing completely for free and having a great time and uh you know we still have to pay for those installs those marketing costs th those infrastructure costs yeah that's typical of the industry is that you have a very very low payer conversion and then you have an even lower whale ratio and whale just to put this in context i mean i understand what this means in the environment of my own e-commerce company in in yours this is to say people who would regularly and consistently pay for whatever it is the, you know some kind of game you know the best features or or the best cool abilities or something like that people who would sort of upon regular use consistently sort of take you up on whatever that cool thing is is this is this sort of the definition of a whale is the whale someone on a recurring billing you know is that part of the game here is this all sort of card present transactions what constitutes whaledom while we certainly look at whales in terms of we want to keep them highly engaged, we don't judge them by sort of recurring payments as much as we do cumulative lifetime spend. And so your whales are those people that have spent the most in your game. And it depends on the game. So, you know, for our Walking Dead game, I think we have people that have spent over, say, $30,000 in the game. You actually have to be kidding me. I am not kidding you. Now, talk to me just real quick, like, about how you actually do that. In other words, like, what, like, is there something that costs 100 bucks and did they buy it, you know, 300 times? Is there something that, that costs 10 bucks and they've had to buy it 3,000 times? What are the actual in-app sort of transactions that are available? 
It really, I mean, it really depends on the game. In some cases, you may be buying acceleration to make certain things happen. So I don't know if you've played the the latest Supercell game, Clash Royale, but they have a timer mechanism to where if you want to accelerate that timer, you can pay more. So there are mechanics like that. There are also, we run a lot of live events and the live events, these are things like tournaments or alliance wars where you have an alliance with some other friends, let's say, that's battling other alliances. And these social competitive events help to drive a lot of lot of monetization and it's very reusable. It's not, I think your readers or listeners may be initially considering the in-app purchase as a oh, once I buy this thing, I never have to buy it again type of, and, and yeah. so there's a limit to how much I can even spend. Like it's, a, like it's a store where they only have one item of every good, and after I buy all the items, the store's empty. That's not what's going on. We're, we're, con- we're constantly refilling the store with new products, and, and really the way to frame mobile gaming is that it's essentially an e-commerce platform where instead of selling physical goods, we're selling virtual goods. And just like any e-commerce platform, it's up to us to keep that merchandise fresh, to create sales and opportunities to spend, to create want and desire, to create sort of vanity and so- yeah, yeah. social competition. Kind of, it's, it's up to us to create these emotions just as it's business. It's business. You go into any mall and you either feel jealous, you either feel desire, you either feel like splurging for something. We have to create the same sort of psychological effects on on, on players. For sure. Yeah. You've got to have strong copywriters in addition to uh, good data science people. I mean, that's a really good point. I would say mobile gaming is an area where, where CRM is kind of at the forefront, where we are doing re-engagement campaigns and sort of uh, sale offers at a micro segmentation levels. So anytime a user churns or if we, we have an inkling that this user is going to be, become a payer, we'll send them a notification or an in-app message that says, hey, why don't you buy this or come back to the app or something like that. But we do it at a much more granular level. And we do it with, we're now start, starting to do custom sales to custom targets. And yes, okay, so this dials in, and I'm, I'm uh, all about, I live inside, at least at present at the time of this recording, uh, live inside marketing automation software and segmentation automation, the slicing, the dicing, action-based, tag-based, whatever, you know, based on purchase or, you know, churn likelihood. This stuff is fascinating. I know for you folks, with as much interactivity, we're not just talking about, you know, the 10,000 you know, customers you can get. We're talking about the, the millions and millions of people who might even just download free and never use it, but you still get that information. You still get to calibrate that. And I think that's where uh, the machine learning and the AI side of your business sort of boots in. Because I know for you folks, we've got the data to now calibrate campaigns in a way that's quite robust when you're working with that many users. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what were some of the initial applications of machine learning in this space for you guys where you saw an ROI and it became a, a fruitful, legitimate use of whatever it was, you know, Hadoop or you guys are leveraging R or whatever the case may be. Where did you first implement it that really made a difference? 
Yeah, so just uh, uh, taking a quick step back, the first thing we had to do, and I think this is important for any company to do, is we first had to build a data platform. Now, whether you license that data platform for someone else or you build it yourself, we had made the mistake before of trying to apply machine learning to a poorly formulated data set. And there's an old adage in data of garbage in, garbage out, and really until you solve, you get rid of all the garbage coming into your data platform, you, it's really hard to build any kind of modeling. So we, we struggled with that for a while, but we've taken very significant strides. And now I would say we have a quite robust and uh, highly competitive to what's in the commercial marketplace, our own analytics platform. So once we had a sort of a big data platform where we, we were able to do hindsight analysis in a very thorough and accurate way, we started considering, okay, what, what's some of the predictive stuff we can do? And really the first predictive use case for us was, was out of necessity. And that was to predict or really estimate lifetime value of people that were, we wanted to bid for. So this is important because you need to calibrate your bids. And sure. rather than make up a bid, pulling it out of your butt, you want to have some confidence that you are not overpaying and you want to bid as high as possible in a growth phase without bidding above your LTV. Because obviously, you know, in a growth phase, if I can make $5.01 off a user, I'm willing to spend $5 for that user. There's a whole second set of then, okay, can we optimize even further? But it's really critical at first to get these games at scale because if we don't get these games at scale, then we have a hard time creating enough social critical mass to make the game interesting, to create enough social competition, to create enough of a user base. So step one is just, okay, let's, for, just from a break-even standpoint, let's get to uh, critical mass. We want to spend in a responsible way. And so, you know, what we've tried to do is based on various channels and device types and, and other demographics, we'll make predictions about that particular channel or campaign and what its lifetime value of its users is. Um, mm -hmm. And then once we have that lifetime value, then we can make more informed bids and iterate that loop. So just to clarify this for some of the folks who are tuned in, Clearly, I mean, if, if, you know, even without machine learning, hypothetically, you take a cohort of, of sufficient size from lead source X to landing page Y into campaign Z. And, um, you know, three months later, you look at on average, you know, what's, what's kind of the stick rate here on average, how much have we collected from these folks? You know, how many folks are on recurring or how many folks have bought other products or whatever? And now we can make a, what we, what we could call a, a reasonable estimate around sort of what we make when we drive, you know, 200 sales from the source or in, in your case, you know, whatever, 20,000 downloads from, yeah. from this source for you folks. And what we're talking about really calibrating this in the big data and in the machine learning sort of sense, from what I gather, you're looking at sort of immediate activities that these people take. Like, in other words, you would need to know this not three, four, five, six months down the line when you can just count the money because that's called, yeah. you know, that's the really easy way. You're looking at, have they taken the micro actions? Are they the kind of engaged users that do these things that tend to become the kinds of people with this likelihood that end up paying us X? And based on that, 
And based on all those little minute sort of signals, are these the folks that we need? I take it that this is what models are getting trained on. That is a more accurate description. And the other point I would make is that the other reason why we can't wait, say, you know, four months, five months, and then build this kind of static hindsight estimator is that the game will have evolved so much in those five months that essentially it's a different game. Yeah, it's not it's not a static product, right? It's not a pair of jeans. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so we need to this goes back to live content and frequent updates and we try to have one tent pole release a month, let's say, with a with a big new feature. These are services. These are live games as a service. And so they are changing and one of the things we look at from a data perspective is, are the new cohorts monetizing at a higher level than the old cohorts, right? So our product needs to improve over time. And so this is why you need a little bit more machine learning to be more highly adaptable to these kind of early signals that may be indicators of, of future spend. I imagine you do the same thing with churn or the same kind of thing with churn. We, you'll get the sense for, you know, we can't just look at six months ago, what were the things that happened to these 2000 people that churned and sort of extrapolate some generalities because the game is sort of always new and different. And maybe the reasons, the triggers that drive people away from use are different as well on different devices or whatever. So similarly, I imagine you, you need something real time on when you're going to lose people, not just how much you're going to make for people. Yeah, the, I mean, that's, that's uh, you said it yourself. I mean, these games are changing rapidly and our ability to react to the sensitivities within the game are, are, are critical. These are, they call them virtual economies. Now, that's a point of debate among economists on whether they're, <laughs> on what, yeah. on whether they're actual economies or really just kind of dictatorships where you set prices. But regardless... I think the interesting thing about mobile gaming is that there's more of a fluid nature of the bi-directionality of the currency. So a user may pay hard dollars for soft currency from the vendor, but the vendor may also give out soft currency in other areas that the user didn't have to necessarily pay hard currency for. So there is a, there's more give and take, and there's if you mess things up, you're subject to inflation. Huh. So, well, so it sounds as though, you know, whether we want to go by textbook definitions, there are still clearly in this contained little virtual world, some of the core forces of, you know, economics that are at play in this domain in terms of pricing, in terms of supply and demand, the invisible sort of mobile hand, if you will, in, in some, in some, uh, in some <laughs> yeah. small way. Uh, final question, Ankar. I know we're, we're just about on time. I'm, I'm fascinated by this environment, this highly instrumented jungle that you live in, which sounds like kind of a, a hits-based world, and it's admirable how much sort of hustle and bustle goes into the optimization here. You know, you folks are actually still a pretty new company, you know, five years old or so, growing very quickly, very quickly now in the LA area. When you went about implementing artificial intelligence, you know, it, when people go about buying a point-of-sale software, they can go to Gartner and they can compare you know, eight different options on a quadrant and they can sort of read synopses of sort of what they do and how their functionalities line up and maybe even case studies. For artificial intelligence, th there really isn't anything like that, like, like that, that will empirically back a decision-making process for an executive like yourself that has to make hard technical decisions. What did you sort of have to base your initiatives on? What informed your probably very expensive investment 
into the artificial intelligence machine learning space? What, what, what were your kind of empirical decision supports for that very expensive endeavor? Well, so I would say data science is one application of our data platform. And so the investment was into a data platform, not an investment in AI or machine learning specifically. It was an yeah. investment in an overall data platform. And the first thing that we had to solve, and, and I talked about this earlier, was just getting hindsight analysis going. So we needed excellent reporting across all the, you know, the number of dimensions across all of our big data. So we needed to solve that problem. Now, once you have a data platform, you can start to do some interesting things. You can build a search topography on top of that. You can build some predictive models on top of that. You can build some systems that affect production on top of that. So it was really, okay, now that we have a data platform, let's layer these additional capabilities on top of that. And I would say that a lot of the problems that, like churn, for example, you can solve some of these problems with very cheap heuristics. Part of it is just, well, we can improve this over time. Can I solve the business problem? Can I solve churn with a simple heuristic and get 80% of the lift that the machine learning model would do? And you actually can. And then when you get more sophisticated, you can try to tackle that next 20% once you have a data platform and you have sort of data scientists that are able to think at the next level about these problems. Got it. So kind of just sequentially working through, all right, you know, once we have our data platform in place and we're permitted to do X, which might drive, let's say, 80% of the results here, we'll just kind of take this baby step, which may or may not be the most expensive thing in the world. It's just sort of, you know, something that we can do with our existing team and sort of incrementally build with artificial intelligence and machine learning, maybe in the spaces where it would be warranted at the time when it would be warranted based on sort of the, the results that you're after. But it sounds as though a lot of your early progress might have been done swifter, easier, cheaper, sort of without those kind of robust systems early on and just, just working with what's going to be the tool that gets this job done, you know, well enough, 80% there for now. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of the problem sets that we have to deal with, we're not dealing with say image recognition or speech to text or things like that. So we were dealing with problems in the business world that have been tackled historically with, you know, simpler regressions or heuristics, and those can get you pretty far. So I would just, you know, I think it's important to always question the ROI of these, of building building these, these models. Like if I can give you a heuristic for a churn model right now and say, okay, let's define churn as anyone that hasn't played in the game in seven days. Yeah. And that takes you a day to implement versus spending three months on a churn model that's more accurate and, and, and more refined. Which one are you going to take that gives you business value right now? Yeah, I mean, you, you got to. And now, so for you, it sounds as though, again, these are questions that to some degree had been answered. Just out of my own raw curiosity and to wrap things up, where did you go to dig those up? I mean, you're just hitting up enough conferences to talk to enough people where they've kind of got these things lying around on a thumb drive somewhere and you can just go plug in that heuristic, like digging around on sort of forums, stuff you learned in school. I mean, you know, it sounds as though you were kind of taking the, hey, this will do the job technologies that were there and, and didn't require sort of crazy robust effort, which totally is not always called for. And and you just went ahead and used those. Where did you go to find those? Because I, I know that probably not everybody listening in is in an industry where a lot of that is sort of common knowledge or easy to find. 
Where and how did you dig that up when you applied it? Well, in the, in the churn example, I mean, the thing to look at is distributions, not averages. So if you look at a distribution of your data, any data set really, you can pretty visually draw some hard cuts in that distribution curve and then come up with some heuristics. So if you say plot number of days that a user stays in the game and I plot that on a distribution, I'll find that maybe, let's say 80% of the people don't make it past day 30 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, then I have a heuristic right there, right? You know, you can do a lot of very simple things by using distributions. So cool. So some of that, again, common knowledgeable you know, findable online. If there's an easier tool to get the job done, and in your case, there certainly were. CLV churn, luckily, some of those are, you know, certainly Googleable, and probably the folks tuned in could do that. Anker, that is certainly all we got for time. I very much appreciate you sharing your insights on your own experience here in this mobile gaming world with us on Tech Emergence. It's been a pleasure. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks as always for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.